morning. Good to see everybody. Man, it's fun. Uh, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met. And I will say I am really excited about the possibility of working with Stu. I have a lot of respect for him and his heart for Jesus. And his, he's just a magnetic personality in a sense. So that's cool. And I'm also excited for the possibility for our church to have a full staff team again. It's been, it's been a long time. So um, anyway, I'm gonna, we're, gonna, we're in a series right now. And we're looking at this theme of Babylon, and I decided because I heard such great feedback from my random reader's digest stories on Easter Sunday, um, my son said that was the funniest I'd been in a long time. So, um, so I'll do it again. Here you go. Here's three stories from the reader's digest online, little stories people submit. The topic for my third grade class was genetics. Smiling broadly, I pointed to my dimples and I asked, what trait do you think I passed on to my children? And one student called out, wrinkles! So, I love this. This next one's actually super cute. We we had just finished tucking our five kids into bed when three-year-old Billy began to cry. Turns out he had accidentally swallowed a penny and he was sure he was going to die. Desperate to calm him down, my husband palmed a penny that he had in his pocket and he pretended to pull it from Billy's ear. Billy was so delighted by this that in a flash, he snatched it from my husband's hand and swallowed it and said, do it again, dad. (laughs) I love that because it's like on one level, you're like, man, that was brilliant fathering. And then you're like, no, it wasn't. Wow, that's like, that's the nature of being a parent right there. And here's our last one. Since I was a new patient, I had to fill out an information form for the doctor's files. The nurse reading it over noticed my unusual name. How do you pronounce it, she asked. Naliaiko, I said, proud of my Ukrainian heritage. That sounds real nice, she said, smiling. Yes, it is melodious, I agreed. So, she asked sweetly, what part of Melodia does your family come from? Melodious, Melodia. And I thought it was a decent weak sauce transition here to Babylonia, right? We're not going to talk about Melodia. We're going to talk about Babylonia. We're going to talk about Babylon this morning. And I thought, you know, we did an introduction last week. We're going to start to get into the nature of the topic this morning. I thought I would even share a little bit of my heart about what I'm hoping, praying for God to do in our church family as we go through this together Uh, One of the things that I've learned just as a human being living in a broken world who's seeking to follow after Jesus with all of my heart, and then it's probably even more, I'm more acutely aware of this being a pastor serving a church community that I'm grateful, very grateful to get to do. But there's a little bit of Babylon in all of us. And, And I think all of us probably are not aware of how much Babylon we bring with us when we gather together in the name of Jesus. And maybe the way I want to say it is, um, you and I pick up tools as we travel through Babylon, <laughs> designed and orchestrated in Babylon. But the tools of Babylon don't really work to build the kingdom of God. And, and sometimes we're just unaware that well, what's the old saying? If, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I mean, I was just even thinking about that this morning and just like the cross, like 
that's a good way of thinking. That's what the hammer gets used for is nailing Jesus to the cross. What if that's the only tool you have? Everything looks like a nail. And a lot of us, we come into the kingdom and our tool belt's full of hammers and we're just trying to hammer everything. I mean, it's a metaphor, but you understand what I'm saying. We're trying to hammer everything because that's what we learned in Babylon. And Jesus is like, you know, when you're done hammering, I got a shepherd's staff here for you. But you can't really take the shepherd's staff until you put your hammer down. Maybe we can put it away. So it's part of what I'm praying that God will do as we go through this series is that, and I don't know that it's all going to happen this morning. I'm going to introduce some language that's going to make you think. But you're going to have to sit with, with, well, sit with Jesus with this. And you're going to have to, like with the Holy Spirit, discern where am I blind to how much of Babylon has shaped me? And where am I trying to bring about the kingdom with the spirit of Babylon? Or, or maybe say it this way, how am I trying to bring about the godly kingdom of God in ungodly ways? Because that's fruitless. <laughs> it's fruitless. And so that's really what we're going to try to do in this series is to pay attention. We want to do the work of Jesus, but then let's do it the Jesus way. I mean, that's, that's what we want to do. And what we'll do this week, we'll focus in on Babylon, uh, and then next week, we'll talk about how do we, because we, we are, we, I mean, we exist in modern-day Babylon. We'll talk about that next week. So next week, we'll talk a little bit about how do, we, how do we follow Jesus in Babylon, and we'll probably try to like do that rhythm for just a few weeks as we journey through this theme in this series. What's Babylon like? What does the Bible tell us about Babylon? And then how do we maintain our loyalty to Jesus in the midst of Babylon? How, how, do, we, how do we put down the hammer when it's the only thing we know? How do we pick up the shepherd's staff? How do we do that? What does that look like? That's what we'll be talking about. And today, I guess in the spirit of superhero movies, you could say, is an origin story. I want to give you the origin of Babylon so that you, again, can have biblical language around what we're talking about. So if you want to open your Bibles or if you want to follow along, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 1. We're in the Garden of Eden. And we're going to be introduced to the serpent, the Satan, the devil. Chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent was the shrewdest, the, the most cunning, the craftiest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, and this is part of, and we'll talk about this as we get into this, part of the craftiness, the cunningness, the worldly, spirit, earthly wisdom of, of the devil, of the serpent, is to deceive. We'll talk, it's one of his primary schemes, his primary tactics. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? So we're doing an origin story of Babylon, and we're starting with the serpent. Hang on to that. We'll, I'll explain why. I'm going to jump forward to verse 14. Adam and Eve are deceived, and they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they rebel and disobey God. And the serpent is cursed. Verse 14, the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. And I want you to hang on to this language because we're going to go into the book of Isaiah in a few minutes. And Isaiah is going to talk about well, the king of Babylon being cast down. He's going to use this language from Genesis. And that's what he's saying. You will crawl on your belly. I mean, it doesn't get lower than crawling on your belly in this metaphor here. 
groveling in the dust as long as you live, in essence, inhabiting the spaces of death. It's part of the imagery here. And I will cause hostility, this is important, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is I mean, we, we, we look at this verse frequently. It's probably the first messianic prophecy. That's one of the things we understand with the cross is that Satan strikes the heel of Jesus when Jesus is crucified, but Jesus crushes the head of the serpent when he's risen from the dead. <laughs> Jesus fills death with his life. Amen and hallelujah, right? So, so that, but, but, but I want to focus in as we're, as we're honing in, we'll get to Jesus. We always do. We always do. But I want you to pay attention to this offspring because it's important. We're in the biblical story. We're in the Hebrew scriptures and we're going to keep reading, but we're not going to come across any kind of serpent-human interaction like we see in Genesis chapter 3. It's not going to be like a, a, a serpent, like another snake offspring talking to another human being, but what the biblical authors are going to do in brilliant ways because the Bible is beautiful. It's amazing. They're going to write these stories that are happening as they narrate salvation history, and they're going to use language that brings in the Edenic language, and we're going to understand the references because we're careful readers of Scripture, and we're going to see that certain people are presented as snake-like. <laughs> they are the offspring of the serpent. And so the first offspring of the serpent we meet is in the next chapter. The two sons of Adam and Eve, the first two, Cain and Abel, verse 8 of chapter 4. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain was snake-like. He showed himself to be an offspring of the serpent. He attacked his brother. Rivalry, violence, accusation, domination. He attacked his brother Abel and killed him. If you were with us last week, we know that our God is a gardener, a God of life. Well, this is death. This is the offspring of the serpent. This is the hostility that rages back and forth in the biblical narrative. But we're keeping our eyes on Babylon, and so we jump to verse 17, and we're told that Cain founded a city which he named Enoch after his first son. We've talked about this before, but it's really important for the biblical narrative, especially as we talk about the kingdom of God, the first human civilization. As we talk about order, we're going to talk about order and disorder and false order this morning. As we talk about order, as we talk about the way we've arranged things, the Bible tells us that the person who started all of that was a murderer, an offspring of the serpent. <laughs> and that's what we've inherited as humanity. I mean, just look, I mean, just, just, just read human history and that's not surprising at all. Well, we're going to turn it up a notch. You're like, well, how do you turn it up? And we'll turn it up a little bit more because the Bible does have this worldview of spiritual realities. Paul will talk, we'll have a sermon on this later, the powers and principalities in the series. We'll talk about this. But one of the ways the book of Genesis tries to invite us in is by telling the stories of these fallen angels. So in Genesis chapter 6, it's kind of a crazy, I mean, there's so much we could say, and if it's the first time you've ever heard this passage, you're going to have all kinds of questions, that's fine, but it's, that would all take us beyond the purview of our Babylon origin story this morning. I, you'll understand what I'm doing as you, if you just hang in there, but, but Genesis 6 begins this way, the, the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. 
And the sons of God, we're going to, I'll show you, these are fallen angels, these are demons. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and, and took any they wanted as their wives. Which again, is just telling you some of this, the character of the people rebelling against God. I'm just going to do what I want. Whatever I want, that's what I'm going to do. You ever hear that anywhere? Where do you think that comes from, right? They just took whatever they wanted. That's what they did. I'm going to jump to the book of Jude. It's a book we don't go to very often. It's a cool little book, but Jude's going to reference back. I just want you to hear the language Jude uses. Verse 6, I remind you of the angels, these fallen angels. He's talking about Genesis chapter 6. I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but they left the place where they belonged. They disregarded God's boundaries and God's design. That's what Jude is saying. These fallen angels went beyond where they were supposed to go. And just in case you wonder if God's okay with it, Jude says, well, God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness waiting for the great day of judgment. God is not happy with what happened in Genesis chapter 6. And even what's happening in the biblical narrative goes way beyond that. I'm just trying to narrate the story to you right now. But a few more verses in chapter 6 as we again keep our eyes on Babylon. Verse 4, in those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites, or your, your translation may say Nephilim, they lived on the earth. And I talked a little bit about this in Deuteronomy. It's, it's one of the ways that the biblical authors are introducing us to this unsanctioned union between the demons and humanity between the forces of spiritual darkness and human beings. It says, whenever the sons of God, these fallen angels, had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children. It says, who became the heroes, and notice this phrase, famous warriors of ancient times, mighty warriors. The Hebrew word there is gibberim, that's plural. The singular would be gibor. And if you follow through, you're going you're gonna to see these like giant-like figures, kind of like Goliath, David and Goliath, these giant-like figures who have extra strength. And, and, and the way the biblical narrative, they're, they're an offspring of, of what's gone really wrong with God's design. Unless you're wondering, well, how do you know this is such a bad time in human history? Well, read verse 5. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. There you go. There's an indictment. So that is where we are at this point in the story as I'm telling you, which then takes us to Genesis chapter 10. I'm going to pick up in verse 8. Cush was also the ancestor of Nimrod. You say, who's Nimrod? Nimrod means we will rebel. There you go, there you go, just in line with this whole thing. Verse 8, Nimrod was, English says, the first heroic warrior on earth. The first mighty warrior, the Hebrew word is Gibor. So when all this awful evil is happening in Genesis 6, we are told in Genesis 10, the first Gibor, the first offspring of that evil is Nimrod. That's who we're dealing with here. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say, this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. And he built his kingdom in the land of where? Of Babylonia. With the cities of, and you could read through them, but the first city listed is Babylon. So now we're, now, we're, now we're at the origin of Babylon, but you need to see the background of evil that has, has gone before. Now maybe you're saying, okay, Jeff, that's interesting, but, 
Why didn't you just start in Genesis chapter 6 and 10? Why did you have to start with the serpent? Why, why did you do that? I, well, because I was looking at a lot of passages this week, and one of the passages I spent quite a bit of time in was in Isaiah 14. So if you'll turn or follow along in Isaiah 14, Isaiah is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's using his prophetic imagination to write this powerful poetry. And he's writing oracles about other nations and about other kings, but when he gets, and I don't think this is a coincidence or an accident, I think it's very intentional. When he gets to this, my Bible says, taunt of the king of Babylon, he begins to, there is a physical king in Babylon in Isaiah's day, but Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Spirit, looks beyond the current living king to the actual king who has been driving Babylon from the beginning. And this is what he says in Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. Now what I'm going to try to help you see is there's all kinds of Genesis 3 language here intentionally as Isaiah is trying to find words, and he goes to the story that he knows to use words to describe this. But some of you may have heard that sometimes Satan is called the devil, and sometimes he's called Lucifer. In fact, sometimes people make TV shows called Lucifer. It comes from this passage right here. The Latin, like the translation of the Hebrew for the O shining star is basically, it comes, that's where the Lucifer comes from, the Latin of that phrase. But we're talking about Satan. We're talking about the devil. We're talking about Lucifer. Isaiah sees him as the true king of Babylon. And then, again, I tried to help you see this as I was reading through the curse. You have been thrown down to the earth. It's just riffing on verse 14. You who destroyed the nations of the world. And I say this sometimes because I believe this about Jesus and the kingdom of God. If you want to truly understand the character of the kingdom of God, get to know the character of its king. Get to know Jesus and you'll understand what his kingdom is like. But I could say the same thing about the kingdom of Satan. You want to know the character of the kingdom of Babylon? Well, listen to the character of its king. You said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I mean, this is, this is arrogance at the nth degree. This is, a, this is a deep desire to dominate, to be superior of others. I mean, hopeless, he's, he's hopelessly enamored with his own brilliance. That's a good phrase. You said, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I want to be in control. I want to dominate. I want to do things my way. And listen to this. I will climb to the highest heavens and I will be like, and I I want you to see this phrase because we're going to come back to it. I actually think it's pretty important later in Luke, the most high. I'm going to challenge the most high. I want to be greater than God himself. Now, lest you get worried, I I do want you to understand, and we will end here in our series. I mean, it's not a secret. One of the reasons I started to pay more attention to the theme of Babylon is because in chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation, we're going to see the fall of Babylon. But Isaiah saw that day too. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths, right? Eating dust. 
And we're going to jump to verse 22. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. I myself have risen against Babylon. And I want you to hear this with the echo of Genesis 3.15. I will destroy its children and its children's children, says the Lord. I actually really think that's a reference to the offspring of the serpent who are in hostility to King Jesus. The ones biting the heel are going to have their head crushed along with the serpent. I think that's what Isaiah is prophesying. Verse 23, I will make Babylon a desolate place of owls, fill the swamps and marshes. I will sweep the land with the broom of destruction. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. So there you go. There's the, that's kind of, I mean, we actually could have done more, but that's, that, that gives you a picture of Babylon, origin story. And let me say it this way, because we're talking about a community, and that's going to be important all the way through this morning. We're not talking about individualism. We're talking about a community. That's the heart of God. And part of what we see when we study Babylon is that when a human community structures themselves in a way that calls evil good, it leads to death. And if if you and I are unaware and we spend a long time in Babylon, we start to carry with us the tools of death. So I'll say it a little stronger now than I did at the beginning, but you cannot build God's kingdom of life if your only tools are tools of death. Some of us are carrying around tools of death and we don't know it. (laughs) Jesus is patient with us, but I hope in this series we learn to lay some of those down bear the fruit of the Spirit. Well, let's kind of, so let's bring this together now. So, so, so we've seen that the Satan is seen as the king of Babylon, but I also hope you saw in Genesis 6 that the demons are off, also involved in the founding of Babylon. So, so let's kind of get at this. And I was, I'm going to borrow some language. I listened to a, a podcast. It was an hour and 40 minutes long. That's a long podcast. <laughs> But I found it really helpful. You're going to get just a, a few snippets of it here. But, but they were, the, the, the podcast was discussing the satanic and the demonic. And I was just enthralled because I feel like the categories were really helpful for me and hopefully will be helpful for you. You might need to, you might need to chew on this. Like I, I said at the beginning, you might need to sit with Jesus on this for a little bit. There's lots of ways we could define the demonic and the satanic, but for the sake of this morning as we talk about Babylon, I want to define the demonic as as what is bringing about disorder. It's chaotic. It's the embodiment of darkness. It threatens to destroy. Think about, as you think about demonic, think about destruction. It it threatens our undoing. It it eats us up and devours. It, It threatens complete annihilation and total undoing. That's the demonic. But I want to contrast that, if you will, with the satanic. Uh, If the demonic is disorder, the satanic is not so much about disorder as it is about false order. And I want to walk through this, but I want to help you begin to see the crafty, cunning brilliance of the Satan... (laughs) And what we're up against so you can identify some of his schemes. The satanic is not about darkness so much as false light. And what it does is it offers us rescue from the threat of the demonic. So think about this. I I told you in Isaiah 14, 
the Satan, the king of Babylon, wants to be, he wants to challenge the most high. He wants to be superior. He wants to control you and I. He wants to dominate. And I believe as far as evil is concerned, it is satisfied with destroying us. I mean, evil, it'll be satisfied with destroying us, but, but, but the king of Babylon wants more. And deceiving us, he's crafty and he's cunning, and deceiving us is far more effective Long-term, the damage is far more lasting through deception. And that's what the king of Babylon, the Satan, wants. Or I'll say it this way. Evil is always attacking us with demonic forces that threaten to undo what we love. But, and here's the crafty, cunning deceit. It's also always offering us a rescue. So it brings about the disorder, and you and I don't like the disorder, and then it comes along with a false order that looks better than the disorder, and so we run to the false order. Evil, the satanic, comes and says, here's a way to save yourself from this disorder, from this threat of destruction, from this false darkness that the demonic is and that the demonic represents. That's what the satanic comes to do. It's brilliant. And as I talk about this, you know, offering us a false order, we're going to do a sermon on this later in the series, I think. But I, I did spend some time thinking about this. It's the false order of the world that actually kills Jesus, not the disorder. I mean, it is the leaders of the false order of the current regime of Babylon in the first century. It is, it, and we'll talk about how the Bible freely calls Rome Babylon in the first century. But it is those leaders, it's the false order, not the disorder that puts Jesus on the cross. Well, we'll talk about that. Or how about this quote? This may help kind of drive it a little bit farther in your imagination. This comes from, I was actually just kind of going through some notes on Revelation. So it comes from somebody writing about the way the beastly propaganda, you know, we talk about the way of the beast or the way of the lamb. The beastly propaganda in Revelation one author says this, the function of the satanic is to make evil look good, violence look like peacemaking, and tyranny and oppression look like liberation. It makes blind, unquestioning allegiance appear to be freely chosen, religiously appropriate devotion. The grand lie does not appear to start as deception, but only as rhetorical exaggeration. Again, it's dealing with this propaganda in Revelation. The exaggeration deepens, lengthens, and broadens in an almost organic act of self-distortion. And eventually, the rhetoric becomes a blatant falsehood. You've been deceived. But now, people have not only come to believe the lie, they're now living the lie. Over time, they have been narrated into it. And I think that's true for many of us. In more ways than we're aware, we've been narrated into the script from Babylon. And the quote concludes this way. At that point, the exaggeration turned falsehood becomes uncontested and uncontestable truth, and its effects are highly dangerous. Evil in the name of good and of God becomes nearly inevitable. And that's what haunts me as a pastor. When our imagination becomes so diluted that we think the only way to bring about the kingdom of God is to participate in the kingdom of Satan. And we are so confused that we think we can use the means of evil to do good. And at that point, I mean, what, what the, the, 
Paul, I mean, all the authors of the Bible, are, you, you are so lost at that point. You've been deceived, and you, you underestimated the enemy. Now, I do think we underestimate the enemy, but we also underestimate our God, <laughs> who in the biblical narrative is far more powerful. Actually, that's where we'll go next, but let me, let me say one more thing. I've said this before, but Babylon is where sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange. Where sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange. And what we need is for the Spirit of God to renew our minds and renew our imagination so that we begin to see and believe in good again. But good as defined in the Bible through the person and revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us unique and distinct in this world, isn't it? That we are followers of Jesus and what he says is. And so if we're going to go about bringing his kingdom, we're going to take the Sermon on the Mount pretty seriously. Because otherwise, we've bought in to earthly wisdom that we picked up in Babylon. All we have is a hammer and everything looks like a nail. So let's jump to Jesus. We always get to Jesus. You'll see why, but I jumped to Luke chapter 8. This is a story I preached on last year, so I'm not going to talk about everything. You'll see why I'm using it this morning. Luke 8 verse 26. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. And as Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons, okay, you see a link, came to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked. You can just think he was in the midst of disorder and destruction and darkness and chaos. And where is he living? He's living in the tombs, in the graves, outside. He's living in the places of death. You can see some of the connections. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and he fell down in front of him and he screamed, why are you interfering with me? Jesus, what does he say? Son of the most high God. You heard that in Isaiah 14. Who is Satan challenging? Who does Satan want to, the most high God? Well, here he is. This is, this is the battle. This is the language. And he says, please, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. But again, let's, and this is what we'll talk about in the series, but Jesus is, he's entering into the hostility. He's engaging in this war. But, but how does Jesus do it? With words. With words. With forgiveness, with mercy, with love. That's how the kingdom comes. And the spirit had often taken, well, Jesus had come in and it says, the spirit had often taken control of the man, even when he was placed, listen to this, under guard and put in chains and shackles. He broke them. He rushed out into the wilderness, completely under the demon's power. Even there's interesting. I don't want to go too far with this. But I actually do feel, as I'm understanding the biblical narrative, I, and why this story is in here, I actually feel pretty good in saying this demonic, this demoniac, this He's the closest thing that we get to a Gabor in the New Testament. (laughs) Here is a man who's living out of this unsanctioned union of the demons and humanity. And he's got like superhuman strength. But we see what happens when even a Nimrod. We we see when a Nephilim goes face to face with Jesus, they have no power. (laughs) Don't forget that. That's That's what the biblical authors are telling you. Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion, he replied. He's filled with many demons. The demons keep begging Jesus not to send them into a bottomless pit. So there happen to be pigs nearby. They, they, just, they, they ask to go into the pigs. Jesus says, okay, you can go in the pigs. The end of verse 33. The entire herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned. But as we're talking about Babylon and the satanic and the demonic, 
Pick up in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd gathered around, and they saw this man had been freed from the demons. He had been living in darkness and disorder, and they see now he's sitting at Jesus' feet. Those of you who go through form know I love that phrase, sitting at Jesus' feet, sitting with Jesus. But he's not insane anymore. He's, he's fully clothed. He's perfectly afraid, and the people are all are perfectly sane, and the people are afraid. That's the distinction. And those who had seen what happened told everyone else what happened with this demon-possessed man and how he'd been healed. And verse 37 is what we're going to hone in on next. All the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them for a great fear swept over them. I'll stop there. The man's going to go on and proclaim the good news because that's how, that's how the kingdom comes. But this town... This town remains a mini version of Babylon. The the people that run Jesus off are the people who are more afraid of what the world is when they don't have this threat than they are of the threat itself. Again, you're going to have to sit with some of this stuff. But, But their identity is determined by the false order that they inherited from Cain and from Nimrod that goes all the way back to the serpent. Jesus, I mean, the kingdom of God is rearranging things, so he comes along to bring the true order of life and abundance, but to these people, he's changing too much, and they're terrified. There is a fear that the demonic awakens in us, a fear that we think we know how to master, and the satanic knows that we think this. And so this village, even though they're terrified of this man, this man then shackles this demoniac. They think they know how to handle him, but they can't really handle him, right? He's too strong for them. But the village has convinced itself that this is just who they are and they don't need to be delivered from this guy, even though they can't control him. I mean, in other words, he is just, controlled, uh, he's just controllable enough that they can feel secure in their existence. And my Part of what I want to say is this is the trick that evil is always doing. Evil is always giving us a threat that's just controllable enough so that we feel that we are right in what we're doing to control it. But, but what we think is right is often what we learn from Babylon. And what I submit to you is just... just but we're, we're just uncontrollable enough that we're never fully settled. We're never really at peace. We're never at rest with God. We're always on the edge and we're driven by this fear. And we start, because we live, we start to like the fear and we start to need the fear. And I know you feel this because I said this last week. Basically, any media source you turn on in the morning is going to say, Hey, good morning. This is what you need to be afraid of today. And you and I are like, yeah, oh, you're right. I mean, you wake up at peace and you're kind of like, wait, what's wrong? I need to be afraid of something. Because fear is what moves me. Fear is what motivates me. I need my fear. And Jesus is like, no, you don't. Wake up. Get out of Babylon. You do not need that fear. Perfect love casts out fear. But the enemy, the Satan loves it because he knows He knows the Sermon on the Mount, and he knows Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus says, love your enemy, and the enemy knows that if you, the Satan knows that if you are afraid of your neighbor, and you are afraid of your enemy, then you'll never love them. And now he's got you. 
And now he's got you. And you're going to feel comfortable, even though you're unsettled, with your fears, but unable to really enter into the kingdom of God. And I know you don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that for you or for me. There's so much more life in the kingdom. I mean, part of the biblical story is that evil is constricting and suffocating communities. That's not the heart of God. So we need to sit at the feet of, the Jesus, of, of Jesus. One, one more passage really quick. I'm going to go pretty quick. You can spend more time with this. But in 2 Corinthians, I just, I'm trying to give you biblical handles at this point in the series to wrap your mind. Because you're going to have to meditate and marinate on this a little bit. Ask the Spirit of God to show you things. But in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And if I understand what's happening, Paul was there. Somebody challenged Paul. It didn't go well. There were, there's been tears, which, you know, sometimes sometimes... I hate to say this, but sometimes hard things happen in the church because we all bring Babylon with us. But our only hope is that we learn to forgive one another <laughs> and then we can learn the love of Jesus together. That's what's happening here. So someone challenged Paul. He wrote a letter. There was all this tearful stuff. The community kind of kicked this guy out because of what he had done. But if I'm understanding things correctly, this guy repented. And Paul has forgiven him, but the community hasn't. So we pick up in verse 5. He says, I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Do not envision a bar graph of emotional pain. Paul's not like, well, I know you felt a little bit more pain than us. No, he means that this has done more damage to your soul than it did to mine because I've forgiven the man, but you haven't. And so this man brought disorder But the enemy, the satanic, has convinced you that a fractured community is the right thing to do. Do you see the deceit? Keep this guy, he's repented, but keep him away. And what does Paul say? Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. But now, however, after he's repented, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now, reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you and see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit because we're a part of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Babylon. And again, this is why I think this is important. Verse 11, so that Satan, the king of Babylon, will not outsmart us because he's wise, he's crafty, he's cunning. For we are familiar with his evil scheme. Paul says, you and I can't, we, can, we, don't have to, we don't have to run from disorder to false order. We can wake up and say, that's not the kingdom. I know the character of King Jesus, and I know how he saved me. And so I'm starting to learn what this kingdom is like. And so I'm going to lay my hammers down, and I'm going to pick up a shepherd's staff. That's what I'm going to do. You can awaken, I, even just thinking of the hammers. You know, I talked about, last week I talked about God as a gardener, and I was even just thinking this morning you know, I talked about sometimes like a vine, if Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and we're guarded, we're cooperating as part of our meaning and purpose. We're, we, we, we reach our hands into the mud with him and we, we lift the vines that have fallen off the trellis and we clean them off and we set them back on the wire. If all you have is hammers and you just know how to hammer and there, there, there's, there's a vine in the mud, well, you're going to take your two hammers and smash them together around the vine, splash mud everywhere and destroy the vine. You've got to put down these tools from Babylon and pick up something else 
and learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus because he wants to teach you. The satanic temptation is to create a community that is fractured and settled in its fracturedness out of a sense of having done the right thing. Paul's saying there's so much more. There's so much more for you. Open your minds. The kingdom of God comes different. It comes like Jesus on the cross. It's an invasion from heaven, but it's an invasion of love and mercy and forgiveness and peace and grace and salvation and healing and newness. God loves you and he doesn't want you under the dominion of the powers of darkness any longer. God does not want you under the powers of dominion of darkness any longer. And Jesus Christ is king. Love is the way. Peace is the outcome. Sins are forgiven and healing is common and present among us. That is the kingdom that you and I are invited into. So don't buy in. I mean, even in the first century, everybody thought Jesus was going to come like every other Messiah before, and Jesus was going to conquer Rome the way Rome conquered the previous empires. But that's not how Jesus' kingdom comes. It comes in a radically different way. Jesus does not use rivalry and accusation and violence and domination to dominate others. He washes feet and serves with humility. So we all have our demons, a fear we think we need, a lust that drives us, a jealousy that fuels us. But that demoniac, man, he just looks at Jesus. He kneels before Jesus. Jesus speaks words of life, and the man is saved. Likely a Roman soldier, in all honesty. That's why probably the demons are called legion. (laughs) This is a Roman soldier, a part of modern-day Babylon in Jesus' day, and Jesus saves them. And he casts out the demons. So look to Jesus. Sit with Jesus and allow the light of Jesus to shine on you and drive the demons away. And I hope, I hope, I hope what you're hearing too, because sometimes, you know, I really do believe there is a moment when you step into the kingdom, when you submit to Jesus, when there's something in you that says, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. And you look to Jesus on the cross and you say, save me from my sins. You are my Lord. Satan's not my Lord any longer. You're my Lord. And I'm, I'm not my own Lord. I'm going to follow you. But, but sometimes we're told, well, we just pray a prayer. We just pray a prayer and we're good. And, and maybe you prayed a prayer five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and you're like, but I'm still stuck in Babylon. Then hear this as good news that there's more to the kingdom of God. In Jesus, there's always more good news. You don't have to stay where you are. Come to Jesus. Come into his kingdom and let his strong but gentle hands set you free. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I don't know, I I feel some excitement in here, which makes me excited. Because I think there's some of us in here who are saying, yes, I'm done with Babylon. I've been a little too comfortable. And honestly, now that you put it that way, I actually think I need my fear. I need my guilt. I need my shame. It's been there so long that it defines me, and I don't know how to let it go. But Jesus, right now, there's something inside of me, and I think it's you, (laughs) that is telling me I don't have to live that way anymore. That there is an abundant life 
just waiting for me. And it's in you. And I want it. And Spirit of God, we're going to sing. We're going to ask you to rest on us. We need to sit with you. We need to marinate. We all, every single one of us has blind spots to how Babylonian we are. <laughs> and we're going to need to do some confessing and repenting. We're going to need courage to be honest that we've been swinging a whole lot of hammers. And what we thought we were doing in the name of Jesus is just damaging more stuff. And we're disciples, and we've got some stuff to learn from you about what this way of love really is, this narrow road that very few people walk. But Jesus, we're ready. Show us. I mean, take us on this journey because we want to be a part of your revolution. (laughs) We would love to see Babylon go down and just more people come into your kingdom. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.